Welcome to the Value Perspective podcast on decision-making. We're a group of value investors working together on the global value team here at Schroders. As investors, we have to tackle decision-making in uncertain environments every day. In this podcast series, we speak to people from other walks of life who also share the challenge of making decisions in complex and uncertain environments. We cover topics such as how to think in probabilities, tools for overcoming psychological biases, and how we can learn and improve decision-making in complex environments. We hope you enjoy it. This is marketing material for financial professionals and professional clients only. The material is not intended to provide and should not be relied on for accounting, legal, or tax advice or investment recommendations. Reliance should not be placed on any views or information in the material when taking individual investment and or strategic decisions. Past performance is not a guide to future performance. It may not be repeated. Diversification cannot ensure profits or protect against loss of principal. The value of investments and the income from them may go down as well as up and investors may not get back the amounts originally invested. Exchange rate changes may cause the value of investments to fall as well as rise. Investing in emerging markets and securities with limited liquidity can expose investors to greater risk. Private assets investments are only available to qualified investors who are sophisticated enough to understand the risk associated with these investments. This material may contain forward-looking information such as forecasts or projections. Please note that any such information is not a guarantee of any future performance and there is no assurance that any forecast or projection will be realized. The views and opinions contained herein are those of the individual to whom they are attributed and may not necessarily represent views expressed or reflected in any other Schroeder's communications, strategies, or funds. Any reference to regions, countries, sectors, stocks, or securities is for illustration purposes only and not a recommendation to buy or sell any financial instruments or adopt a specific investment strategy. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to The Value Perspective. This week, we're joined by guest Gary Cernovitz, a managing director at Lime Rock, an oil and gas-focused private equity firm and the author of The Counting House, a novel about investment management. Gary started his career as an oil equity research analyst at Goldman Sachs before making the transition to buy side. We're delighted to have Gary on the pod, as I do believe he's the first fiction writer we've had, and his latest novel paints a light into what the university endowment world is like how it operates and its different cultures, motivations, and characters. While researching the novel, Gary spoke with Verger CEO Jim Dunn, a future guest on TVP, so keep your ears peeled for that one. In this episode, Juan and Gary will discuss Gary's career journey, the research behind the novel, how an investor can differentiate themselves, the personalities and politics between decision makers, absolute returns versus relative, and finally, the ethical dilemmas faced by modern CIOs. Enjoy. Gary Cernovitz, welcome to The Value Perspective. It's a pleasure to have you here. How are you? I'm well. Thanks, Juan, for having me. Where do we find you today? You find me in a hotel in Boston, Massachusetts, after the third day of Houston, Montreal, then Boston, meeting with uh, various capital allocators of different shapes and sizes. And so we have, we have me at 5.45 in the morning. So uh, I'm not quite at top wit. Uh, know that, that uh, the job still uh, has its demands uh, during the normal working hours. I was going to bring that up. I cannot thank you enough for <laughs> connecting with us as, at such early hours in the morning. Thank you very much for, for doing that. Oh, no, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. For those that don't know about you, could we maybe start by you walking us through your journey? I understand that you at some point used to work for the sales side. You were at Goldman Sachs. 
and then you have been making a transition or you made that transition to the buy side, you are at a company called Lime Rock. What's Lime Rock about? And then we can move on to the main topic of our conversation today. Great. Yeah, no, my, my journey is, you know, I think uh, I always like to remind people I was, I was born 50 years ago, well, no, 50 years ago last year, where it was actually a very low birth rate in the United States. So 1973, 1995, when I got out of college, it was actually, I think, like one of the last gasps of, you know, you could have just like a classic liberal arts education and still get a job at Wall Street without much unusual nature to it or fuss. You know, I was a history major. I thought I wanted to be an academic. And I decided uh, between uh, going to London uh, before I graduated that I didn't want to do that. I studied British history and I was kind of left, you know, kind of needing a job of some sort and looking at a lot of things, going to California, going to Hollywood, being a speechwriter for a politician in New York. And one job that came up was, you know, Goldman Sachs equity research sell side, where I didn't uh, know uh, much about what equity research was or the sell side was. So I thought it was like, uh, you know, kind of being a good student, which I was of, uh, of, of history. So took that job, got it uh, amazingly enough, moved to New York, did that for three years, and then quit that job in 1998 uh, to try to become a writer full time. So for six years, I, you know, you know, seems more glamorous in hindsight than it was in its, uh, in its, in its poverty at the thing or kind of relative poverty, but I was a writer, wrote two novels. One was set in finance. One was set in the state fair of an undisclosed Midwestern state, did a little bit of freelance work. And then in 19, in 2004, six years later, you know, there was always a, a road not traveled in 1998 where two colleagues of mine at Goldman Sachs, guys uh, three years older and five years older, had started an energy-focused private equity firm in 1998. They had asked me to join as their first kind of investment associate. I was like, dudes, I'm done with Wall Street. I'm going to become a novelist. I'm going to become Saul Bell. I'm going to become Philip Roth. And in 2004, I ran into him at a wedding of a mutual friend and, and a colleague. And they said, how's, how's that going? I said, well... You know, it's not quite sustaining financially. And they asked me to write a <laughs> uh, uh, PPM for them, a private placement memorandum for God knows what reason they wanted to find a guy who had not worked in finance for six years. Um, so I did. Then they asked me if I could just stay on as a part-time job till the end of the year. And here I am 20 years later, still at Lime Rock, now kind of uh, one of the senior partners in charge of kind of business development, capital raising across both our original strategies, which was you know, lower middle market, oil and gas, private equity. But I'm here in Boston of a strategy that we started for about five years ago, uh, in addition, which is energy transition, private equity products and services companies. So uh, yes, yeah, so I've been doing that for, for now for 20 years. And in that time, I found time to write as well, written some things for The New Yorker, written some book reviews, wrote a book about the shale revolution about seven years ago. So the uh, being productive at five in the morning uh, for my writing <laughs> life is actually you know relatively standard versus doing it at a more sensible hour, uh, 10 a.m. What were you covering for Goldman Sachs when you were working on the sales side department at Equity Research? Uh, oil and gas as well. So, you know, the small random things that determine a life. When you get a job in the Equity Research Department at Goldman Sachs, they take you around to various senior analysts. So you're not part of a pool. You're effectively apprenticed to a senior analyst and talk to a pharmaceutical analyst, talk to, I can't even remember the second one, and then the oil and gas you know, uh, analyst covering both refiners, but the Exxons and the Chevrons. And he later told me that I kind of reminded him of his 
somewhat lost son, not uh, <laughs> physically lost, or but just sort of. And so he hired me because he kind of liked that I was not terribly driven or ambitious or knew what I was doing. So, but that and similar happened to the two founders of Lime Rock, who you know all got into the energy business because uh, we were hired in, in that group, which was not like the most glamorous or uh, group uh, then or now. Did you have the chance to work with or meet Arjun Murthy when you were at Goldman? He was actually on the buy side at that time, interestingly enough. He was at JP Morgan, one of the big clients of Goldman during you know, the other period that you're probably interested in. I, I was there you know, when the big mutual fund complex were the clients and, and not the hedge fund. I remember, I mean, I actually wrote about it in Literary Magazine where we were introduced to this uh, firm in the research department called SAC Capital. That you know the sales force was very clear. It's like you guys may think Fidelity and Schroeder's and you know and Scudder and all those are your big clients, but uh, SAC is generating more commission revenue for this firm than anyone else, and you know <laughs> kind of reorient you. So yeah, so definitely new Arjun, and then actually after the two guys who had hired the guys at Lime Rock left, they brought an Arjun to kind of re reboot that group. He's one of our favorite people in the energy space. He has been, I think, three times on the podcast. Okay, and, good. And yeah. he, yeah. And then you recently wrote a new novel, which yep. is all about the endowment world. Yes. And it's a fantastic read. I we totally recommend it. I've been telling all people in the industry that they should read it. It's very entertainment entertaining. I have found the main character, the CIO, very funny. Yeah, you know, I think the the novel came from like sort of three kind of three things led to it. One was just you know, I had written this book about the shale revolution and it was kind of like a primer from all different perspectives of how the U.S. shale revolution, what it was. And it was done in my voice. It was done in a, you know, trying to be funny, trying to be entertaining, trying to be a tight, short read. And I know and I kind of thought that was a gratifying experience. And I, I thought like something like that would be a good thing to do about the age of alternatives. So hedge funds, private equity, you know, all the other, all the other that I, it's, it's always been like a book that was in the back of my mind, like I should do this again, but it was never getting up at five in the morning to do that. Never was, uh, uh, got me up out of the morning. I think the second was, uh, frankly about talking about wall street novels and, and particularly novels versus the nonfiction books that actually obviously, uh, capture it. Well, so many wall street novels. Uh, are about everything but investing that kind of annoyed me in a way where they're about rich people in London or New York City. They're about, you know, Russian gangsters. They're about call girls. They're about all, all these things. And you know, the, the authors usually do some research and they'll have a guy who has a job, but you can kind of tell it's it's a little bit pro forma. And so it's always kind of uh, struck me that uh, there's a, there's a, in most novels, and I'm stealing a phrase from a critic, uh, James Wood, uh, about another topic, but like most novels about Wall Street, investing is the backdrop, not the fabric. Mm -hmm. So I've always thought like there should be a novel where investing is the fabric, not the backdrop of a book on Wall Street. And then the third element was just like, I have to be annoyed to write a novel, you know, or get <laughs> up in the morning, you know, and it has something that has to drive me. And so I, you know, I, I kind of my writing career because it's not my full time job. I don't, I don't need it to, you know, uh, pay the bills. You know, it still has its frustrations. And there was a period where a lot of things, essays and stuff I was pitching were not being accepted. 
I had not written fiction. I had actually two novels published, two novels not published. I had not written fiction in like 10 or 11 years. And my wife finally said to me one day, like, stop moping about how no one appreciates your genius. <laughs> Go ahead and write. And you know, why don't you try to write fiction again? You haven't done it in a long time. <clears throat> and she said, write this part. Yeah, there's a story I told. Write it as, as, as fiction. And I, you know, I followed orders because I'm a good husband. Uh, <laughs> she gave me a Saturday off. Off, I did it. And then the entire novel sort of came not all the scenes, not all the words, but the, the shape of the novel, the character all really came together. But that was based on you know 20 years of, of thinking about why Wall Street novels aren't what I want them to be. And also sort of this experience of like educational but entertaining from the show revolution. Without spoiling the, the story, the setup is basically the CIO of an endowment, big endowment of a college in the US. Yeah. And all of the different engagements and the interactions that he's having with pretty much everyone on the endowment world, yeah. his team, the trustees, the politics of the university, and all of the different, very uh, colorful or not, asset managers trying to pitch these very good ideas to him and how he's yeah. kind of analyzing and reading the environment. It's really entertaining. We were wondering if you could walk us through a little bit how was the research process to write the novel? I guess you are taking or you took a lot from your real life experience. And also how much of this novel is reality versus fiction? Yeah, so I'll take the last one first where, you know, and this is a very pretentious thing to say, but like sometimes fiction allows you to be more real than reality as yeah. a writer. <laughs> Um, in the sense of like, like if just as a person, you know, very practically speaking, I'm still a participant in this industry, but also as just kind of a, uh, I think a relatively forgiving person. And the novel has sort of like a empathetic and kind of forgiving within the kind of the absurdity of it all. I think if I tried to do it like this was, you know, about, uh, you know, Hormel University instead of Cornell University and tried to very, very mapped to specific schools or specific people or specific managers, I would have been very uh, seized up and actually wouldn't have been able to tell the truth. So the, the, the core of the novel, and it's, you know, and I think you get it, some people get it, is like, yes, all the managers, you know, are fictional. Yes, the school is fictional. The CIO is fictional. There is no pattern of the CIO. The CIO of anyone is closest to me who has never been even close to a CIO in my entire life. <laughs> but by doing that, by doing the form of the novel, I could actually get to like the feelings, the soul, and like these broader truths of how it works rather than, you know, if I was just like a complete bastard of like just trying to expose very specific managers with uh, our very specific strategies. So everything in it, you know, there's obviously some dramatic concision. People are more you know, like like on podcast after you do uh, audio editing in novels, people are all a little bit more eloquent than they are in real life. And then there's sort of sort of a stage drama to it all. But other than that, it was really trying to be intentional. Like all of this could happen. There's one scene with Jack Bogle that is as good as I remember it, which actually <laughs> happened to me uh, and a colleague. There are, you know, people work at Goldman Sachs, people work at some firms that are kind of in the background that exist. 
But for the most part, you know, everything, there's no sense of like, oh, let's find out if this is Elliot or Millennium or yeah. KKR or Bain. But trying is, as you get it, trying to, for a person coming out of university, a good way to understand like how the, how investors think at all these kind of different terms. And, and in terms of, you know, the, back to your first question, my very long rambling answer, I didn't want to do a lot of research for that reason. I didn't want to be tied to the notebook or s- s- smelled. Uh, of like, you know, kind of like trying to get sentences in. So you just kind of let your imagination flow and kind of recreate it. You know, I think the one area that I did get a little help was on some of the more exotic liquid strategies. Mm -hmm. Like there's one quant at the end, there's one sort of an emerging market credit uh, manager hedge fund. But that was like, I have one very good friend who's also a writer who you know, one trade he was complaining about. So I just stole that trade uh, to, to complain about. But then I sent him those two chapters and he's like, what rings false? And then generally, you know, in a late draft of the novel, I said that some people worked at endowments and said, hey, is there anything that rings false to you? And as a gut check after I wrote it. You do, I mean, many of the strategies presented on the, in the, in the throughout the novel and many of the asset managers that are coming to present to the CIO's team I mean, th- those are quite relevant. Like the first one is the private private debt uh, guy, thir- 33-year-old coming out of Wharton and Apollo, pitching yeah. his idea to him. That's pretty much what's happening in the world today. That was not the case in 2019. I feel very proud of myself uh, for <laughs> yeah, that well, chapter you, up front. You timed that very, very nicely. Yeah. I want to ask you, so the, the, novel, the background of the novel is, is the journey of the CIO of an endowment. And endowments have become pretty much the blue ship institutional client, the dream client that any investor wants to have. No. Why pick the scene? Was that the reason to build up the story around the CIO of an endowment? And how different this is, or do you think the CIO position is from that of other institutional investors, such as a pension fund or an insurance company or a family office? Yeah, I think there's a few reasons. The very practical, blunt one is my joke is like, I thought no one would want to read a novel about the CIO. Slightly above no one would want to read the novel about a CIO of anything but a college endowment. It's so in the news. Mm. It is, you know, David Swenson is such like, was was a public figure. You know, people think about their college. So it, it was just a very kind of practical approach that it's slightly more glamorous. The second one was, I, you know, you had to have something with a relatively small team because, you know, a novel could get unwieldy if it had, you know, this was CalPERS with, you know, uh, you know, seven different, you know, private equity teams looking at, looking at, looking at assets. So I wanted to do something. So it could have been a family office, but I wanted it to have like a tight team with few characters looking broadly because there is, to an earlier point you made, an attempt to really map what is finance today and very deliberate. Like I'm not having seven venture managers come in. It's one, it's one private credit. And so you not needed something that was tough. And then I think, you know, in terms of a family office versus sort of a, you know, you know, because also midsize, a $6 billion endowment, you know, I think it allows a lot of the moral questions, the soul searching questions, like, is my life worthy? What am I doing? (laughs) And I think it, it, it adds, it amps that up if, you know, he really feels passionately about the use of proceeds. And I assume 
managers of family offices also feel good about their use of proceeds, but I've talked to them and a lot of them are like, I'm making a billionaire, a slightly more billionaire, you know, it's a, it's a little different question, but I thought this one allowed, you know, a little bit more reality outside finance and, and those kind of thoughts to come in. And, and, and it, it sort of takes on a life of its own. Once you make these decisions in a novel, you kind of go down this road. So got to things about college politics and all the competition within endowments and things like that, that, yeah, we're not the intention to bring those questions up, but we're the result and kind of ended up being pretty, you know, some of the more fun parts of the novel were about that. Something that comes across the book is the difficulty of the very different investors to differentiate themselves in a quest that looks almost impossible. The pitch, the deck, the strengths, weaknesses are pretty much all the same, regardless of the asset class or product you're trying to push and present. And every, every every one of us, we believe that we are so unique, but in reality, the message sometimes is, is very difficult to di differentiate. And actually, this question comes very close to my heart because the Value Perspective podcast started exploring decision-making under uncertainty. And very early in the book, I'm going to quote your book. Okay. This, made me, this made me laugh. Very early in the book, the, the CIO says, I open quotes, 50% of our job is listening semi-patiently to GPs, general partners, the asset managers, lecture us on how they have conquered fear, greed, and uncertainty in the more accurate prediction of the future. Not totally believing them is another 25%. The hardest 25% is figuring out what, to, what exactly not, to not believe. But anyway, back to you. Why exactly are you avoiding the bright lights of big cities to work here of all places? And so I wanted to ask you, the CIO is this, is always in this constant battle to find what one person, that one person with a unique original story, that it's absolutely different and has the passion and the greed to actually pursue what he's trying to sell. What makes, in your opinion, an investor stands out? And is that even possible? Listen, I, you know, I wrote the book, but I'm in Montreal yesterday and an investor, luckily someone I knew, made fun of me and my colleagues for having a bullet point, like value-added, hands-on investors. And he's, you know, and so we're all trapped in capitalism's great wheel is any good idea encourages competition and shrinks the margins of that good idea, right? So, and that's making a widget and that's making a, a private credit fund. And so, you know, and, and, and so I, so this novel, you know, the theme and, you know, and, and, you know, and I think it's on the back of the cover, he eventually meets this like kind of legendary reclusive hedge fund manager whose message is kind of implying your question. Like you're all fakers, you're all undifferentiated, you're all doing this, you know, it's all, you know, sound and fury signify nothing, you know? And so, but the novel doesn't endorse that guy. It doesn't necessarily disprove him but it's saying we're all trying to muddle along and sincerely trying our best to do it. So I think the one thing for being in a very narrow asset class, like I am professionally, is you're long and you're wrong sometimes. You know, it's mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and so part of the CIO has nothing to do with the manager's ability to differentiate, but it has to be like, do I need to be in the energy transition? It's the companies are younger, but the tailwinds are stronger. The investors aren't as, you know, are, are newer organizations. So, you know, relative to, you know, people have been doing classic kind of venture for, for 40 or 50 years. So, so I think that is so much part of the CIO job. 
you know, and that whole industry is going through a transition from the Swenson model to make it even more difficult for themselves in some ways as kind of best athletes and just trying to find like how WashU does it, how a few other, where we're going to find 30 managers across asset classes who have some edge. <laughs> and a lot of that is not, they can, they're more hands-on value adding uh, in lower middle market private equity, but it's like, they're doing, you know, very, you know, weird stuff. And, you know, but that's, that's, there's not enough of that, you know, <laughs> for everyone. There's not enough of that for CalPERS and CalSTRS and Adia. And so, you know, I think you get to another part of investing, which I don't talk about that much in this book, which is a lot of, for a lot of capital allocators, you don't need to be the top quartile, top performing fund all the time. You have a fiduciary duty to generate 8% returns or 9% returns or 6% returns. And in there, having, you know, there's an economic term, satisficing, which is kind of satisfactory and sufficient, you know, kind of mm -hmm. mixed together. I think it's William Simon, the economist. It's like, so when you go out to, when you're going home for dinner tonight, your like goal is not to have this meal that is like, like, you know, the most amazing meal you've had, this like, this orgasmic taste in your mouth. You're like, I want to have dinner tonight. That's good. Right. And it doesn't have to be the greatest meal of my life. I think there is that too in asset management in some cases where I just need a meal that's good. And that for takes a little bit of the pressure off the managers <laughs> because you're not pitching like a world historical genius. You're pitching lower risk, somewhat better than market returns within your segment. And there, a lot of the stuff is on the margin, personal relationships, history, you know, kind of fees, things like that. So there is like a level of complexity that is very different than I think one we all expect. And even in Lime Rock, our culture is like best investor wins, you know, <laughs> and we are going to knock them on the head until they acknowledge our greatness. There is a lot of other decision making that goes on that's, that's independent of that. Which leads me to my next question, because in, in the novel, the endowment needs to generate an absolute dollar amount on a year basis so that it can cover its expenses. Yeah. And they believe, the team believe that in order for them to generate that set amount, they need to generate something between six and 8%, which you already referred to. But there's also like this competition from the endowment, people working in the university, the press, the team, other investors, to compare the relative performance of the endowment against other endowments. And that puts a lot of pressure on the CIO. And so I wanted to ask you, is that, is that the case? Are, are these endowments in the US so competitive that it's a real thing that they are actually checking how their performance is relative to that other university? Then there's another thing which they all have it against Harvard. Harvard comes across the book all the time. And so I guess the question is, are they really that competitive? And then isn't the absolute return what really matters? Who cares if you are like number 20, if you, if you can achieve the minimum return that you needed to cover your expenses? Uh, yes and yes, I think is the answer. Yeah, and this is, you know, this research is not like a survey of CIOs and endowment professionals that got to this answer. I have had one endowment say, like, we don't really care about relative returns. 
this was an endowment that consistently had top returns. So it could be in sort of like, you know, you know, uh, that uh, noblesse, you know, kind of oblige of like, oh, this is all just a silly horse race. Well, you could say that when you you know, have built something that, that does it. First of all, a lot of uh, I think probably most endowments are benchmarked against other endowments in, you know, not only at the top level, but at asset class level where people's compensation is actually determined by relative performance. Okay, interesting. So, so, so I think that's real. And I've had been at lunch with, you know, two, one dominant foundation professionals kind of complaining about who is in their benchmark, you know, and how they can beat it. And I think secondly, I've seen it, you know, trustees are very successful people of these institutions. They, the Wall Street Journal covers endowment returns. Bloomberg covers it. It will write an article. Reuters will cover an article when it comes out. And they are very competitive people. And they don't like being, you know, in uh, country clubs in Long Island or Park Avenue penthouses or, you know, or Atherton uh, school, uh, school fundraisers and feel like their endowment is embarrassingly poor performance. And they put a lot of pressure on the, the you know, they're the bosses effectively of, mm. of the investment professionals. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't, you know, a novel again has like sort of a dramatic uh, concision uh, to, to, to kind of, to have it move as, as a work of, uh, as a book. So you keep on reading it. So maybe it's a little more obsessed, but um, just, but I, I, yeah, I, I definitely think they care at the same time, you look at like, you know, uh, in, uh, Pension Investment Magazine has a p- page that has all the endowments listed and a new endowment is listed. It goes up on there. You look at the 10-year returns, 8 to 11%, you know, so everyone's kind of hitting it. There's some outliers. And so mm-hmm. I think probably, you know, your average CIO or trustee, you know, says, hey, and the university president of the novel says, you generate a lot of money for this university. You know, you you have done your mission. That fact that you're eight and not ten doesn't matter. So I, I think both points of view are in the book. I think the more dominant point of view is probably reflective of just like people people want to be unique. They want to have purpose, and you know, no one gets out of the morning and says like, "I want to be the twentieth of twenty best at my job." Yeah. Yeah, of course. Which also leads me to my next question, which is you explore in the book in a very good way the politics and the dynamics of the endowment throughout the whole story. The personalities behind the different trustees and the people behind the decision making, their politics and the pressure that they face. And that's something that you were on Ted Sides Capital Allocators podcast, and he has explored or he has tried to explore a lot or try to explain to or educate his listeners about how many of these institutions actually work. And I think that that comes to life through your book. So how difficult is the political environment and the pressures for a CIO at an endowment? I mean, you have already kind of sort of covered this in your question before, but I wanted to accentuate the question. Yeah, you know, Ted came out of the Yale endowment. You know, David Swenson writes very thoughtfully about the agency problem, you know, mm-hmm. and, and novel apes that concern in, in this character at the end, which is so many investment decisions are not done based on, you know, absolute assessment, but they're based on a trustee tells me this guy's cool or 
Princeton's also doing it. And a trustee says, how could Princeton get access to this manager? We're not getting access to this manager. So these are all the agency problems, right? Individual frailty and comparison and jealousy get in the way of investing. You know, and so that no one has found a solution because <laughs> ultimately the investing business is a human business and we're all human. And so what I tried to do in the novel is, is kind of, you know, use those conflicts less to just kind of make fun of the CIO for doing his job poorly than to kind of dra dramatize what ultimately is like all of life in front of you, infinite options, but but finding like the the rea the pressures in this book are the reality of the school that this is not just you know you're running a mutual fund with anonymous investors out there and then you do have your morning star rating but it's all kind of you know internal and numbers on a page this is like the university president's calling and saying hey we're gonna have to cut scholarships mm. or cut a team you know, or, or, or something, if this keeps up, and she's very nice about it, you know, probably nicer than she needs to be. And so that was the purpose of this, you know, it, just to kind of make the ideas of investing have consequence. So, you know, you're in investing, you care about this, this is, you want to read more about investing. But for people who come to this novel new, you know, to, to understand this is not just like, you know, the conventional wisdom, like all you guys are just Playing video games with numbers, it doesn't matter. <laughs> the CIO also needs to deal with, and this connected with the politics of the endowment, the fact that his team finds a very attractive energy project or investment. His team is traveling to do due diligence on the capital allocators. Sorry, on the on the on the on the new fund or the investors. And he finds himself talking to the president of the university who's telling him that he might not be able to do that. And actually, he needs to disinvest or uh, lower the capital weighting in the portfolio allocated to energy because the politics of the university and what the endowment is signing for mandates them that they need to be more on energy transition, green infrastructure. So I wanted to ask you about that angle of the story, given that it's very topical, it's very present. That has been happening a lot over the course of the last five years. And I think that there's a constant tension for CIOs and investors between finding the right balance, between giving away an asset that they believe very strongly could deliver very good returns, but maybe a lot of the perception around that specific asset class is not the best. And then doing the right thing for the long term as well. That, that was a little awkward territory for me because you know I work for a firm. <laughs> <laughs> that you know does both energy transition but also does oil and gas investing and it is a very lived experience for me to you know call a university endowments like gary we love lime rock etc but we can't invest with you because the trustees have said no my response is not as gentle and understanding as yours uh you know in in the in the <laughs> phrase question and so i think part of it there's like awkward responsibility as a novelist like I felt if like I ignored that issue, given that people have Google, they can tell my background, it would seem somewhat tacky. So I had to uh, run into it head on. And I think the CIO, and, and I have found this broadly speaking, 
when the the more the more an investor kind of feels in their bones the use of proceeds, mm-hmm. the less theoretical it is, the less interested they are in sort of the edge case implications of a small endowment investing in one sector or not. The guy mm-hmm. has six billion dollars. Whether he puts a $20 million allocation to buying some mineral interest in the Permian base does not matter to uh, the, the fate of the climate. I think for him, just because he's on pressure, all he thinks about is delivering this $240 million to the school. Anything that prevents him from doing it feels like an offense against the school, an offense against him, and generally also... You know, his emotional reaction is the school hadn't this hasn't decided yet. It's just one ponytail professor kind of, you know, kind of collecting petitions and they're still talking about it um, at the school. So I think his his also emotional reaction from that is like, you know, you know, you're having a bad day. You're having a bad week. You're having a bad month. And here's another thing that is just chaos and agency problems and bullshit that you have to deal with rather than him having like a formal view that you know of you know that had it, it does not deeply explore you know sort of the moral balance of that my other book is kind of about the moral balance of kind of oil and gas uh, in a nonfiction context but it's a, it's a it's a hugely important question and the one question that i there's a line in the book that has resonated with a lot of endowment friends which is like five percent of my portfolio gives me 95 percent of my headaches yeah. Unfortunately, yeah. uh professionally I'm involved in that five percent of the portfolio that gives ninety-five percent of the headaches. So I actually I, I wrote down another quote which I, I I found very powerful where where he's saying, and I, I open quote, two hundred and sixty-four million dollars is about being the responsible the responsible party on campus to keep fed this experiment of intellectual freedom and exchange. Even if the art historians and scholarship kids don't know what we do. Even if they hold what we do in contempt, I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain it to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. That's one of my favorite quotes on the well, entire book. Well, yeah, that, you know, the last sentence was Jack Nicholson in uh, A Few Good Men. <laughs> yeah, so exactly. Like, so, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, exactly, yeah, no, exactly, like, exactly, exactly, exactly. He makes the point to the, he makes the, he, he's having the interaction with someone very young and that person doesn't know a few yeah. good men. Yeah. So there's definitely a, you know, a Gen X versus millennial or whatever Gen Z dynamic <laughs> through the book where you and I, you know, everyone would know that quote, but like a woman uh, he's talking to stares at him. But yeah, but there, there is that, that, hey, the other part is not uh, Aaron Sorkin. Uh, you know, he's, he's one out of uh, five sentences in there, but it is that sense of, again, like, he treats his job very seriously as like this sacred duty. He believes in, you know, and colleges and universities in the U.S. I mean, we've just come through a period where they have been so controversial, you know, as if like the yeah. entire situation in the Middle East really boils down to who the president of Harvard is, which is yeah. not really, is like the 1,000th most important issue. But I mean, we've seen like just the, that, that, is such uh, a part of like for whatever reason elite universities you know a certain category of you know of americans put all of their emotions into the policies the personalities um of it the nice thing i think i like the cio is like this is still like an amazing place 
this is a rich, wonderful place and people can explore and grow and do all these things in four years. And so not only is this like kind of the novel in some ways and that's part like an endorsement of he is doing good work, but also like he's doing good work for a good place that we spend a lot of time shitting on, you know, the, the, the insanity of uh, American universities. But it's like, you know, a lot of people in this world would give a lot of parts of their body to be able to attend a rich American university for four years uh, and meet the professors and have that experience. There's another thing which comes across from conversations that we've had with other CIOs in, in other endowments, and it comes across in the book, and it's the fact that their ultimate goal is to preserve the right to exist for the next 1,000 years. And in order for, for them to do that, this is a very key component of the whole strategy that will allow them that right to survive yeah. for a very extended period of time. Barry, we're coming to a close of our conversation, and I wanted to ask you if you could recommend us a book it could be one of your previous books. It could be this book that we've been discussing in detail over the course of the last 45 minutes. It could be, it could be anything. Okay, well, I have to. I can't be a complete asshole and recommend a previous book. But I will say, one, <laughs> your enthusiasm for the Counting House, people should hopefully read it uh, as a result. But, you know, you want a stack of books on, on the bedside table. So, you know, Counting House has to be number one on the top of the stack, maybe buy three copies just in case you lose one or two. After that, uh, two, I'll, I'll just be very obnoxious and answer three. One, like a lot of people have asked, like, oh, this novel, it's so interesting. You don't know what he's going to do until the end. I mean, you don't know how he's going to react. He's going to kill himself. He's going to kill someone else. He's going to quit. He's going to work. He's going to do all that, that. And I would say, like, this is in the tradition of great interior novels and Portrait of a Lady by Henry James, a big Victorian novel. You know, it's kind of set set it, and it's still every bit as enjoyable today, and every bit as tense about putting feelings, these moral decisions we make through feelings and experience. That is, you know, still like you know, when people I didn't invent this in my novel, that invented it, and it's still just as gripping as it, it's always been. So read a good classic Victorian novel. So my novel first, Portrait of a Lady, and then the third one I just read was The Fund about Ray Dalio. So if you okay, want interesting, just yeah. a uh, hit your hit your uh, hand on the head of like the weirdness of this world and the weirdness of that particular world, it is an extraordinarily entertaining, jaw-dropping read that you can read very quickly. So two quick books, one kind of long, long Victorian novel in the middle. But uh, so I, got, I gave you three. Those are fantastic recommendations. And one of the things that I, I, I forgot to mention before, which is absolutely true throughout the novel, he is going through this very rough period of time, the CIO. He's he's in a struggle. And you and you don't really know what's going to happen. How is he going to end up? Yeah. Or how is he going to fit in the in the entire question? So thank you very much for that. Thank you very much for your time. And it's been a real pleasure. And yeah. best of luck with the new novel. We will be promoting it and telling everyone that we know that they should read it and have a good time reading it. And it will be very educational to them. Awesome. I really, really appreciate the support and it's been fun being on. Thank you very much. Bye.